1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with Mary Stuckey about her new and fascinating book, Political Vocabularies, FDR, The Clergy Letters, and the Elements of Political Argument. This book was recently published by Michigan State University Press, and it is an important avenue to explore a number of different aspects of presidential politics, political rhetoric, communication between elected officials and constituents, and to understand how a snapshot in time, in this case, in the 1930s, can provide a much bigger picture and understanding of power, political change, and the sense that America has of itself. This is both a compelling read in terms of seeing how just one aspect of political communication in this case letters between President Franklin Roosevelt and the clergy in the United States can provide a window and an exploration of how Americans understood and saw themselves during some of the darkest periods in our contemporary history and how the president and the executive office was engaging with Americans through their faith communities. But I would love Mary to delve into her multiple theses in this book so we can talk about the various dimensions that these letters between clergy members and the president provide for us in understanding American politics, political vocabularies, religious warrants, political imaginaries, and more. But first, I would love for Mary Stuckey to tell us a little about herself and how she came to this particular project. Mary, join us.
0: Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Lily. I love this podcast in general, and I love being on it, so thanks very much for that. Uh, I am kind of an odd duck in political science for so many reasons, um, but not least because I study communication. I work out of a department of communication, so I'm both a rhetoric person and an institutionalist. And I like to combine those two things. I think that rhetoric sheds light on political institutions and also that political institutions uh, structure our political rhetoric. So my work is really sits at the space in between rhetoric and um, presidency and political institutions, uh, which I think is like the most happening place in American politics right now.
1: And I I think I mentioned to you last spring that I had a student who realized that she could study those things all together. And she was just delighted that there is a prospect of doing something like that. Um, (laughs) um, So early in this in the book, you outline. This idea, the importance of political imaginaries and ret- rhetorical compilations that provide the framework for these imaginaries. Can you explain what you mean by these terms? What is a political imaginary and how do most of us understand this in our American political context?
0: Sure. So um, uh, the there's a lot of work done on political imaginaries. Um And essentially what they are, are communities that we live in, in our heads. So our political communities aren't material facts, right? They are things that we create for ourselves. And of course, that's the space where rhetoric is important. And so the entire United States lives in a political imaginary that we all agree upon, right? The importance of the founding, the significance of the civil war, the fact that we are founded on an idea, that we are a nation of immigrants, right? All of those kinds of stories that we learn in elementary school and then again in high school and then again in college, those are stories that unite us nationally as a political community. Within those and within that, so we all believe in equality, we all believe in freedom, we all believe that the United States are dedicated is dedicated to those ideas. But within that larger framework, there are always at least two, and often more competing versions of what that actually means. So we can agree that the revolution was important, um, but what does it mean that it was important? We agree the Civil War was a significant moment but we might have very different understandings of what that war meant and whether or not we should still be hanging on to it or not. Um, Should we be, you know, commemorating that war? Well, maybe, and maybe not, right? People who live in different versions of the United States have different understandings that are always both um, consistent with and competing with one another, And so this book is a chance to look at what are the elements that make up those political imaginaries? How can we tease those things apart analytically so that we can see how they're structured and how they operate? So while the book's in the 1930s, it's also, compellingly, I think, about today.
1: Yeah, that was one of the points that you make throughout that I found really interesting and valid with regard to understanding how ideas are shaped through the rhetoric that we hear from elected officials, particularly from the president, but also in places that we don't always think about, like on the pulpit um, on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning. Um you connect this understanding of these imaginaries and, and their competing sort of understandings with one another to the American dream. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about how these competing ideas contribute to this broader concept of the American dream.
0: Sure let me go back just sure. a second to to sort of reframe that just a little bit because i think that there are five elements that construct a political imaginary right the different versions of it may locate political authority in different places so in the 1930s democrats were happy to give authority to the president in but republicans really wanted it to stay in congress or in the private se- sector so you have this distinction of where is the appropriate place to make decisions um we depict the the political world differently so just quickly you can see the difference between people who think that folks on welfare need a helping hand versus um people who think of welfare cheats So there's sort of this long standing division in American politics between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Right. So we people are political imaginaries. And the way we describe other people and political events is tremendously important in how we depict and understand the political world. Those things always place people in hierarchies. So we prefer certain kinds of people to other kinds of people. And so hierarchy is the third part of the political imaginaries. Um, a fourth one is how do we deliberate? So the deliberative notion of politics, which is both how do we make decisions and what kind of decisions we make. And then the fifth one is that these, um, these other four things amount to a vision of the world but it's justified, understood, mobilized through standard American mythologies. Um, one of those mythologies is the American dream. And so people might have very different versions of what does it mean to have the American dream, which doesn't really show up in our politics until you know the 20th century. And so this idea that um, some people might envision the American dream as getting government in Reagan's terms off the backs of the American people so that people can do what they want. And there's a that's a sort of. Well, and let me rephrase that so you can think of the American dream as either a spiritual, um, uh, an ideal, uh, uh, an idealistic version or a sort of materialistic version is the American dream you know, a chicken in every pot, a two-car garage with two cars in it, um, or is it something more um, ideal than that? And there's pretty big divides in our country on how all of those things are understood.
1: Yes. And and that was actually my question about the five interlocking elements, as you note, and you also explain that they are found in the clergy letters. Um, and thus they provide you or the, they provide the reader with the structure of the book, because you take the sort of letters and you your research through these five elements. Um, and so I, I would really love it if you could go into a little bit more detail about each of these five elements that you just quickly iterated um, to explain how they frame the analysis and your exploration of these particular letters between the president and the American clergy in the middle of the sort of dark days of the depression.
0: Yeah. So these just a quick moment about the data set, if I can, because I just I'm so in love with these letters. So I was writing I I went to the FDR library the first time because I was writing a book on Roosevelt uh, and his rhetoric because we don't actually um, have anything in a long time that that's really looked carefully. And that's the book called The Good Neighbor. Then I went back because I got sort of interested in the 36th election as a, a moment of deliberative. Uh, democracy and how does deliberation work in the American Republic. And so that's voting deliberatively. And both times when I was there, um, I I love archivists and I especially love the archivists at the FDR library who are knowledgeable and smart and kind and funny. And um, while I was there, one of the archivists, Sarah Malcolm uh, was reading uh, this file of these letters. And she told me that the clergy She told me about the clergy letters, which are some 8000 letters in 1935, right after Social Security passes. Roosevelt writes um, the entire American clergy, some hundred and twenty thousand letters go out from the White House saying pretty much. So what's up? How are things? Tell me, like, do you all like Social Security? How are things in your neighborhood? Is the New Deal working? And obviously this is on a crass political level. Um, an attempt by Roosevelt to get the clergy to support his reelection, because in 1935, it is, no, it is by no means clear he's going to get reelected. And, but it's also this kind of wonderful data set where these clergy write back and they're like, you know, Your Excellency, just I just want to thank you. Because of you, Alice Smith is still alive our community was on its last legs. Alice had no money. We, you know, we tried everything we could to support her, but she was going to die because there were just no resources to support her. And then you pass social security and that's $6 a month that Alice gets is keeping her on earth. And we just want to thank, you know, and it, these heartbreaking letters about, you know, Um, I'm a blind guy, you know, I'm a blind pastor, and if I don't get some help, you know, I'm going to have no choice but to go begging. Um, There are communities who write to him and say, they know this isn't really what you asked, but if you could just send us a tractor, one tractor, you know, our whole community, we would share it, we would grow our own food, we would do everything we can, Mr. President. You know, you read these letters and you just want to run up to the archivist and go, did they get their (laughs) tractor? Were they okay? You know, and people write back in just enormous rage to the president. You know, they put Mr. President in, in scare quotes. You know, they pretty much call him names. These are clergymen. <laughs> you know, or just like, you know, you repealed prohibition, and when children die in the street because drunk drivers are hitting them in their cars, that's on you. You know, and they are furious, and they are not shy about telling him so. And so these, you know, um, only about 8,000 of the clergy, I say only, about 8,000 of the clergy wrote him back, but they write him back on all kinds of stationery, on the back of his letter um, on like, because paper is precious, right? It's the depression. And so you you get this, like you really do kind of inhabit their world while you read these letters. And I just got completely sucked in to this data set.
1: I spent years reading the letters before I knew what the book was going to be about. And that's, was well, I mean, it's one of the things that I enjoyed about the book is that you were so engrossed in the letters um, that you, you know, you were sort of trying to convey various information um, it through a sort of scientific lens, political scientific lens, if you will, but also it's just the humanity of, of these people who were you know, communicating with the president, which is also something, you know, we have an interesting communication um, dyad these days through Twitter, which is a little bit different, but not completely different from what you experienced reading these letters between the president and and constituents. Um, yeah, let
0: me just read you this one little quick vignette. Um, one of the clergy writes a guy named Stanley Whitesell. Writes the president and says, There is in our community a little girl. She was injured in childbirth. Her grandparents sent her to James Whitcomb Riley Hospital in Indianapolis for treatment. Unfortunately, she was not given the kind of care her little body needed to bring her back into happy childhood health. She was put aside to die. Her grandmother wanted her brought back to her home, and so the grandfather brought her back. Here, under the tender care of those who love her, she has a chance but the grandparents are very poor. They do not have an income sufficient to enable them to provide for this little child and a little sister left with them. Also, if some provision could be made for those little ones by our federal government, Mr. President, nobody knows what a tremendous influence it might have for your program. May I say our social security program. And so when you read this and it's, it's heartrending, but also it's, testimony to what the New Deal and what Social Security meant on the ground to people. And people who can read this without being moved, like, I, I kind of don't. Know
1: <laughs> I mean, I, underst- I understand reading through some of these letters is, is, it is a fascinating sort of avenue in to also what the the constituents, what Americans were thinking at the time. Um, and he and he opened himself up. Right. Franklin Roosevelt, as president, sort of said, hey, do you like this program? Um, right. <laughs> and and he got responses. And, and you also make a point of the structure, the way that the the clergy are positioned um, in relation to the president but in relation to their flock or their communities, that's important to essentially your thesis or your theses. Um,
0: Yeah. So there's two kinds of structures that I think are really important to talk about here. And the first one is the fact that these clergy occupy a particular kind of institutional authority, right? So even the, the barely literate, and there are some of these letters that are barely literate, these guys are still probably the most literate people in their communities, right? They have a certain status and so they're, communi- they're opinion leaders, they're community leaders and they speak to and know those people and so you you get this kind of sense that they are speaking for the president to the people but also before many of them answered the letters um, they took them to the community, to their congregations and said, how do you want me to answer this? What are the stories you want me to tell? What do you want the president to know about this community? And so they send photographs and they send long descriptions of, you know, this is a community located in this place with this kind of industry that's had this kind of consequence of the depression and this many families have left. And so there's this kind of data-driven, you know, we need the president to see us, um, and, and that speaks, of course, to the uh, changing relationships in of political power, right, that under Roosevelt, power moving from the states to the federal government and from Congress to the president, and, and the clergy are aware of that shift and are trying to get responsiveness from the government because the states and communities are just overwhelmed. Right? I mean, in some of these places, unemployment's over 80%, which is just mind boggling. And there's no help. So, those kinds of structures um, and that kind of institutional position is really important because the clergy are these kind of mediating um, roles. And the second way I want to talk about structure here is that while you read all these letters and they're tremendously moving or funny or both right? Or angry or all the things. Um, But they fall into structures themselves, right? It's not like I sat down one day and said, oh, there are five elements of political (laughs) vocabulary. And I'm going to take these data and, you know, and stuff them into those boxes, right? It's that when I sat down and, and started making sense of these letters, it was like, you know, they're all talking about authority they're all talking they're they're offering these depictions they're all creating these hot political hierarchies they're all addressing how should we make policy and they're all justifying this within um the mythology that is passed down to them they refer to the framers they talk about american myths all the time right so it, there are two kinds of structures there that I think are both interesting to communication and political scientists, right? In the sense that this language comes with a structure, but also these people are in a, an institutional position where that structure is profoundly revealing.
1: And and I, one of the other elements that I thought that you really highlighted in the book, because it is letters, from clergy to clergy, but from clergy, is the role of the clergy in the American context? Um, and you, you know, you sort of note the the role of religion in the United States as it comes through these letters. Can you ex- discuss that a bit? Sure.
0: So this is a moment, right, in American politics in which um, religion is profoundly important. And not least because um, after World War One, of course, and the Soviet uh, Revolution, you get this burst of anti-communism. And so, you know, Roosevelt gets called all kinds of things. He gets called a socialist and a communist and also a fascist, um, right? In the same way that we all continually throw these labels around. Um, and so the clergy speak to this kind of very particular authority. And so many of them will refer to the Constitution and often get it wrong, which because of course they do. But sometimes they get it right, which is also kind of exciting. Um, But it's really interesting how many of them um, use religious warrants. And um, they talk about how the New Deal is the first truly Christian government the United States has had. Um, They talk about the need to follow biblical warrants. Um, It's one of the reasons they're so angry about the repeal of prohibition. And, oh, my God, the only thing that unites (laughs) these clergy across the board is their absolute rage at him for repealing um, prohibition. Uh, They are just furious. And they're partly furious because the drunks are going to kill children in the street. But, oh, my God, women are now out there drinking and wearing short skirts and going to movies and, you know, the... entire country is going to hell in a handbasket and um that many of them want him to call the nation um back to a day of prayer uh they want him they believe that the depression is in some sense a visitation on the nation for its failure to live a fully christian life um and it is almost always christian um Roosevelt is the president who sort of brings Judeo-Christian into our political rhetoric um, and, of course, takes a very heavy hit for that among some people. Um, But he has a lot to do with dampening the kind of rampant anti-Semitism in the country. But. Still, almost all of these letters, uh, by far, the vast majority of them are from uh, various denominations. Especially.
1: And I found it interesting. You opened the book, though, with an excerpt from a letter that was written to a rabbi. So yes.
0: um, I liked that because I wanted to make it clear. So the, the letter was a form letter and I used the one addressed to a rabbi, you know, of the 120,000 that went out. Because I did want to make it clear that he was, in fact, um, reaching out as broadly as he knew how. Um, I doubt that he was reaching out to Buddhist or Hindu or um, Islamic communities, Uh, but he was, in fact, trying to be, for his day, reasonably inclusive.
1: Um, And and so one of the other elements, as you note, with regard to sort of... The the f- the five components that you talk about um, is is this discussion of policy um, and the back and forth to a degree with regard to sort of the validity of the policy making by the president as opposed to the legislature. And you, you, you talked a little bit about that already, but can you talk a little bit more about how this, these letters sort of show some of that shift that we know happened during this period?
0: Yeah. So they, treat this both as um, a good thing and a bad thing, right? Depending entirely on which one of the letters or which one of the political imaginaries we're talking about. So um, particularly they are very clear, for example, that they want, um, that they want the, the United States to remain out of international affairs, right? That this is a depression. We need to take care of ourselves. Um, except the Catholics who are adamant that the president should address the anti-clericalism that they see happening in Mexico, which is a huge issue for them at the time and for absolutely nobody else. Um, Roosevelt ignored them because he could. Um, and also because he didn't really want to go to war with Mexico. How about that? So it's good to know that, like, never mind, I'm not going to say that. Um, so that they both attack him for the they attack and support him for the substance of his policy um the two policies that they really hate the most are of course prohibition which i've already talked about and uh the agriculture adjustment uh, um uh agriculture administration act agricultural adjustment act sorry um the aaa which um was an effort to control the amount of produce and meat that was being produced by farmers in an effort to raise farm prices because farms had been devastated. And the great irony of this is that it meant that the federal government wanted them to burn crops and just kill hogs and beef um, at a time in which people are starving. And uh, and the reason for this, of course, is that there is no refrigeration. So they can't transport the food where it needs to go before it rots. But this is a tragedy, and the, the clergy are morally outraged by the fact that they are killing off, you know, needlessly hogs and sheep, and while people are starving, and they blame Roosevelt um, unequivocally and accuse him of all kinds of awful um, things. And they are, of course, not wrong, right? It is the president's policy that is causing this wholesale slaughter. Um, The fact that the slaughter can't be used to save the starving is not something I think the president could have done much about. But still, Um, there might have been ways to transport living animals, (laughs) right? Um, And and, and it wasn't a, a terribly intelligent policy, but this is one example of how the clergy are like correcting him. Right. And they're not writing their member of Congress. They're not talking to their state government. Um, and even the clergy who say, as many of them do, I know you're not going to read this letter. Right. You're just doing this for politics. And if you think I'm not on to you, you're wrong, because I totally get the game you're playing here. And then they write for four or five, you know, cramped difficult to read 1930s handwriting pages of like what he should do. And it's like, you know, if I think nobody's listening to me, I'm kind of going to stop talking. These guys tell him, I know you're not listening to me, but just in case, right, I'm going to tell you what I think, because the, the possibility that someone in Washington will hear them is so important to them that they can't not take that chance. Um, which is in itself, I think, revealing of where they think power is now located.
1: So that they are sort of cognizant that they're more likely to get a hearing, possibly, um, from the president than from their senators or representatives.
0: That certainly seems to be the case. They almost never mention, um, I can count on the fingers of one finger, uh, the uh, number of people I can think of who mentioned a member of Congress or a senator in their letters.
1: And so they just they um, and they
0: were all hopeful that the president would. And in fact, the president did mark some of the letters um, and say, make sure X knows about this. Right. And sent it off to the agriculture. They they did a, a sort of rough data count on um, what are the topics in these letters. And there was a report that got shared, I believe, with um, some of the cabinet secretaries. Um, So there was some mild, very minor effort to get some of this information where it needed to go.
1: But there wasn't a lot of necessarily back and forth, per se. So Roosevelt wrote to them, they wrote back to him, and that was kind of the end of the dialogue. But... But that yeah. Roosevelt or people in the cabinet also read some of the letters, a lot of the letters, and got a sense of what people thought of New Deal policies, what their issues were. That was something that came out of this. Um, I think they probably didn't read the letters themselves
0: so much as the summary report okay. that sort of said, this many clergy think X and this many clergy think Y. Unsurprisingly, of course, Social Security was
1: enormously popular um the aaa not so much (laughs) um and and among the letters i mean you you noted you you read one of this young young girl in in indiana are there any other letters that particularly stand out for you in reading so many of them that you know really came at the response in a way that moved you or perhaps moved the president?
0: Um, you know, I, I there's a couple of very funny ones. So there's um, one I'm going to not be able to quote accurately and I'm probably not going to be able to find the quote, but it's, it says something about, you know, thank you for consulting me. You know, Pharaoh had David and you have me. <laughs> you know, with this kind of... <laughs> you know, why, um, where he both kind of suggest he, he cites Pharaoh and he cites another biblical leader and another advisor and then says, and you know, you got me, which is this kind of recognition both that, um, uh, he is not David and also that Roosevelt is not huh. son, right. Which is, uh, kind of, uh, enjoyable I do one of the things I love most about this book is that I got to for the first time in all the books I've
1: ever written I got to index (laughs) Um, yeah most of us in political science don't get to do that
0: yeah right and it it was and I was I was thinking you know they're gonna take this out (laughs) because really and it was a question in my mind like is it (laughs) Santa? it's not in case you ever get the (laughs) chance it's Um, so one of the things that I, I quite liked about this is, um, so I'm going to read a, another quick excerpt sure. if I can, and then I'll talk about it a little bit. Um, S.C. Cornell writes, in my sincerely humble opinion, the subtle dangers that insidiously work to destroy the spiritual values of life are far far more dangerous to our fellow beings than the more apparent subnormal conditions that affect primarily their physical life that the physical has its inevitable effect on the spiritual is of course recognized. It is yet an irreparable disaster if the physical needs of folks are met at the expense of such intangible, indispensable character values as personal initiative and self-respect. These values seem to me gravely threatened at this time and I'm quite confident that many of our people have already acquired a state of mind decidedly undesirable and distinctly dangerous to moral, spiritual, and the physical progress of our nation. If I discern clearly, an alarming number of persons are looking toward government as though it were a super Santa Claus that will become aware of and provide for their needs. Thrift and conservation seem to have little or no place in their plans or conduct." And so this, if you, like I've been talking about these sort of passionate letters and these angry letters and these sad letters, but a lot of the letters take this tone that is, Specifically deliberative and quite carefully phrased, and um, very co- analytic rather than passionate. Right, in that here's my diagnosis of what's wrong with the country. And while I understand that you're feeling the need to feed people, be aware that that's dangerous. Right, that that you're going to lose individual initiative and so on. And that was a huge debate at the time. Right, as of course it still is. And you get these really thoughtfully phrased arguments about what are the best political choices for the country. And that's really another astonishing thing about these letters is the kind of level of analysis that these guys engage in. And they're almost... Yeah, I was
1: going to say, likelihood there were probably very few women who are writing these letters.
0: Very few, although some of the women... Some of the letters, at least one of them I can think of, was written for a minister by his daughter, who was also a minister, which I I mean, I believe she was also a minister.
1: But so, yeah, almost very few of the letters were written. by. And him. and is there is there information that comes through these letters with regard to race? Oh, yes. Oh, my. Um, oh,
0: oh, my. Yeah, let's just say that some of these guys were not, uh, let me see if I can point some of the, um, so some of them were extraordinarily racist. Um, one, R.M. Hunter uh, writes, you put more stress on your African jungle friends than your white friends. In Mobile, for instance, you have selected the best building for their headquarters and have made it an incubator for communism. Colored gentlemen? From the north are the speakers who tell their southern protégés that they will see that white and colored schools shall be made one, and that colored gentlemen shall marry at their will white ladies, not white trash. This author unsurprisingly told the president, I believe in white men's supremacy in a white man's country. And so you get these kind of startling, well to us startling, and not at the time startling um, in particular, um, people. You got, You also get ministers um, who are African-American who are pleading for their own communities. Um, you get um, many white ministers in Indian communities uh, writing, uh, asking for more for their communities as well. So you get both advocates um, and, and some really kind of spectacularly racist um, stuff, which was hard because that's always difficult, you know, like when you have to make the choice of do I, how much airtime do I want to give? Right. To
1: um, which we have this,
0: but I'm not going to say that's not. A yeah. Thing, right. Because it, it was a thing. <laughs> um, and it was one of the things that limits the new deal is um, I don't know how much Roosevelt wanted to do on race. Um, I don't think that was sort of one of his front burner issues. Uh, not nearly as much as it was, for instance, for his wife but certainly he needed the Southern Democrats and they pretty much told him if you sign a civil rights bill, the new deal's dead. Right. And he was like, (laughs) (laughs) um, he told Walter White, the head of the NAACP at one point, you know, if I had different tools to work with, I would, but I don't, um, Roosevelt was above all a political realist. And, um, He didn't fight on that particular front. He let his wife do it and he never objected to anything that she did there. And he would, you know, sort of just go, I you know, it's Eleanor, what am I gonna do? Um which people kind of bought, but you know, twelve years in office, not a single piece of civil rights legislation.
1: Yeah. Um although as you note, things like social security also were um of interest and use to African American communities to a degree
0: yeah but certain categories of um uh, of employment so people like gardeners and maids um and people like housekeepers today right those sorts of jobs are exempt from social security right. and they did undermine the ability of African Americans to provide for their retirement
1: and that is, again, more of a limitation with regard to race and and the, yes. the form that these kinds of sort of programs take. So I'm going to ask you to loop your research from the 1930s um, yeah. to the current debates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's... Well, we're on the subject of race. Oh, I saw
0: so I think that... Um, the, the easiest way to talk about this, right, is that we could look at a similar sort of database, right? We could look at replies to the president on Twitter. We could look at, you know, something that was like this. Obviously, there aren't going to be 8,000 letters written to the White House. And from what I understand, apparently, White House records are not what they once <laughs> were. So, you know, my all thanks as someone who loves archives to the poor interns who taped together.
1: Oh, the shredded, the things yeah. That
0: the president did. <laughs> um, but there are going to be public data sets of some kind, right? And we could go through those data sets and tease out the separate political imaginaries in which people are currently living, right? So I think it's true still that we inhabit the same... Um, land of the free, home of the brave, you know, political imaginary. But we have very different interpretations happening right now of what that means. Um, I want to argue that we've always had (laughs) competing definitions, right? And that we can find, like, we could look at where people think authority properly lies. You know, the president is making arguments that he has the right to do things that Democrats, interestingly, are now saying, hold it, wait, no, stop, (laughs) no, no. Right. You don't actually have the right to do that thing um, where, you know, in the 1930s, the Democrats were all about. Sure. Well, carefully, they were all about, yeah, let's give the federal government a little more power. Um, I think you could look at how other people are being depicted. Are people in the who occupy the current political imaginary seeing the same political world? I don't necessarily. Yeah, we are. Right. I think we're depicting it in very different terms. You know, um, some people see immigrants in one way and some people see them in a very different way. And we use different language to describe them. So we're actually you know, sort of creating different political realities and how you bridge that, I think, is a question you can only answer if you understand the curvatures of those imaginaries where does their common ground where is their not common ground and um it was very different in the 30s not least because the majority you know the republicans were in such a minority after 1936 um which is very shortly after right the the clergy letters that i look at um but you know the 36 election pretty much erases them, um, at least for a short period of time, you know, until Roosevelt tries court packing and, um, the purge and sort of breathes new life into the Republicans by being stupid. Um, that, but like now, if we looked at how people were depicting and understanding their political imaginaries, I think that's the way we find common ground because it's rhetoric. The political world is rhetorically, Created. And if we don't look at the rhetoric and take it seriously, we won't understand.
1: And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that in terms of the the book itself and the current dynamic. At the time that you are looking at these or in in the time when these letters were being written, while the political rhetoric may be in opposition on various sides, was there a common ground with regard to the the terminology and understanding. Um, in in
0: 1935, not okay. so much. Um, what happens is that the common ground gets forged. Um, six years <laughs> later, <laughs> had to do some math there. Um, you know, with Pearl Harbor. Um, And even then, right, that war is much more contentious than in our public imagination. Like that remains the good war, the united war. You know, like, well, let's talk about like the Balkans. I mean, it was a pretty freaking complicated war. And and, um, as I talk about it in the Good Neighbor book, um, Roosevelt didn't necessarily do all the right things um, politically as an outcome of that war. Uh, right, he sets up the four policemen, where he thinks the Soviet Union and Great Britain will check each other in Europe, that the United States will continue to run its own hemisphere, and um, that China will maintain the East. But Roosevelt, at the end of World War II, has no vision at all for the Middle East. And <laughs> hello, that <laughs> turns out to kind of matter. Uh, and so. We get a sense of common ground as a result of that, you know, the war and um, the really tremendous and important consequences of, of defeating um, the Axis in that war, uh, which leads us to sort of the calm of the 1950s. But even that calm, right, it, it's, <laughs> it's transient, if not misleading. Right. And, and because... Civil rights is brewing to sorry, civil rights is brewing through that, you know, all the things that are brewing through that decade. So I think that we live in a much more tumultuous political world than we want And I
1: would, I would add to that, that part of the political imaginary with regard to things like World War II are the cultural artifacts that we've been fed now for decades um, that sort of put a gloss on that period um, and Absolutely. then we come away then thinking, you know, again, the greatest generation, um, you know, we defeated the Nazis, etc., and Nazis are bad, or at least they were for a time. Um, <laughs> uh, they're I, I think bad. they're still bad, they're but, still. <laughs> but there seemed to be a little bit of a renaissance for them. Um, but that, you know, we sort of, as you talk about the sort of political imaginary, it. In a lot of ways, it is it is shaped by the rhetoric of elites, as you note in the book, either clergy or politicians. Um, But I think also with 70 years since the war, so much is shaped by popular culture iconography.
0: Yeah, Um, without question. And it is uh, I mean, it's also true that, you know, for much of our history, we were all watching the same news. Right or listening to it in in the case of the 1930s, listening to the same news on the radio. So Roosevelt gives a fireside chat and the whole country listens because it's really the only game in town. Right? And so the siloed new, you know what, um, oh, I'm losing her name, Um, wonderful book called Niche News. Um, Anyway, like the whole, I mean, it's not, you know, you don't need to footnote the fact that news is siloed, right? And um, I mean, I, I, believe that, um, news outlets that, um, conscientiously purvey misleading and false information, um, are probably the single source of difficulty for our current democracy. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, that's the political comm media person in me. I could go on that. For a straight line. And, and will that be your next project? No, no. My next project. Oh, all I have is the title in the first line, but boy, am I excited about it! Um, it's called "Deplorable Elections, Despicable Discourse in American Politics." Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> I know, right? Um, although I have to say, I'm spending a lot of my time feeling like, oh, my- I need to shower now <laughs> um, because there. You know, the first line is: um, "It is possible to make the case that all elections in American politics are, in some sense,
1: deplorable." <laughs> So will you go back all the way to the beginning?
0: Um, Maybe back to 1800, but I think probably post-Civil War. Um, And it's not so much that the elections are despicable and that we, you know, elected the, quote, wrong candidate, so much as elections are a great moment to study the kind of swirls of um, undemocratic discourse that does constantly circulate in the United States. So in the 1920s, um, so many members of the Klan show up at the Democratic National Convention in Madison Square Garden that they call it a Klan, Um, right? And so that's obviously an election that, yeah, let's talk about the influence of the Klan um, in American presidential elections, right? Let's talk about um, 68 when the dog whistle gets invented. Let's talk about uh, 2016, um, will, of course, obviously be one of the elections um, there. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, looking at, at 1876, which kills Reconstruction um, and is the corrupt right. bargain, right, that gives Mother Farad beef. <laughs> um So I'm looking at those kind of things, but it's less about uh, the outcome of the election and more about the terms on which the elections were fought.
1: That sounds like a great book. Will you come on? The new book's... <laughs> Podcast and talk about it once it's written? I would be delighted to do so, of course. Great. Thank you, Mary Stuckey, for talking to me today about political vocabularies, FDR, the clergy letters, and elements of political argument. I assume that this book can be purchased from all the usual sellers, but is there some place near and dear to your heart where somebody might pick up this text? Support your local bookstore. <laughs> um yeah support your local bookstore and this is michigan state university press for those who are interested this is a great book and has a lot of fascinating archival work in it so go get go get a copy of it thanks for being with me today mary thanks so much for having me lily